0: Well, Lord, we come today asking you to show us Christ through the preaching of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And as you do, throughout my years of pastoral ministry, I have begun to witness a common theme kind of play out throughout the Christian culture. It's a tendency that many have to to measure one's relationship with God by the ebbs and flows of one's feelings, emotions, and personal experiences. So in other words, experience positive feelings, strong emotions, then you deem your relationship with God to be good. But experience a lack of positive feelings, lack of emotion, and you deem your relationship to be distant or not in a good place. In fact, this may be where you find yourself this morning, feeling a a bit distant and disconnected with God or from God maybe even massively distant and disconnected from God. And if this describes you this morning, you're sadly, you're not alone. But alone or not, this isn't a place where you want to be. I hope you don't want to be there. It's not something we want to be feeling, a feeling of distance, especially from our Creator a feeling of, of discontent or disconnectedness. But when we feel this way, or you feel this way, or the broader culture of church feels this way, what's the temptation to do whatever it takes to get those feelings, that emotion, that, that feeling, experience back, like we may have experienced at one point in our life, or what we think that we should be having if we haven't experienced it in our life. Think of it like students going to camp and and feeling the need to get back to to church camp. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you, adult or student, have have been to church camp or church retreats at some point in time? So a good number of you. Some of you, for those of you who haven't, church camps and church retreats commonly are associated with a, a kind of a spiritual mountaintop experience, if you will. And you get away, and it's a, it's a time to be able to be rejuvenated and grow and to be more closely uh, connected to the Lord and His word and his people. But then, after an incredible week of camp, students return home. And what happens upon returning home? You begin to descend the mountain. Sometimes it's a slow descent. sometimes it's a rapid descent down. The mountain, all the feelings, all the emotions, all the excitement from a week of camp, no longer once what they once were. And as these feelings and as these emotions fade, I know from years of being a student and leading student ministry, what's the tendency? What's the cry? We've got to get back to camp. We've got to get back to camp, or we've got to recreate the camp experience at home so we can get those feelings and those emotions again. We've got to do what we can to get that back, which can then lead to what? It can lead to the attempt to create worship experiences that will then help foster those or these emotions feeling some need within, like that we have to do something to summon the Spirit to work in a fresh and new way. But that assumes what? It assumes that because that you yourself are feeling distant, that because your feelings and emotions aren't what they once were, where you desire them to be, that for some reason that the Spirit isn't present, or that the Spirit isn't working, and friends, nothing could be further from the truth. An ongoing and, or renewed passion for God isn't something we have to manufacture. It's not something we have to create or recreate. It is something that we have to nourish, but it's not something we create. And what I want us to see this morning is that an ongoing or renewed passion for God is not based on some perpetual spiritual high. It's not based on on a perpetual ongoing mountaintop experience. That's not the Christian life. But rather, I want you to see the Christian life is a life consistently and faithfully lived following Christ on his terms and not ours. And it all starts All of this comes back to possessing and understanding a biblical understanding of conversion. A biblical understanding of what it really means to be saved. So that's what we want. To have a healthy understanding of salvation. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2 verse 37 where we pick up at the conclusion of Peter's sermon at Pentecost that we looked at last week. Now, we looked at these verses as well last week, but now we're going to press in a little bit closer. The crowds of people in Jerusalem have, have just witnessed 120 who were gathered in the upper room, who were filled with the Holy Spirit. They've seen these 120 come out into the streets and proclaim the mighty works of God in their own languages. And then, what are they left saying? What does all this mean? Like, what is all of this that's taking place? How do you explain this? And what did Peter do? He preached a sermon to give him the answer. As he points to the prophet Joel, and he points to King David, and the work in Psalms and showing them how all of Scripture is pointing to the, this Jesus that they crucified and that God raised from the dead as being who? as being Lord, as being King. And that understanding, when they opened up the Scriptures, and the the Spirit then cut them to the heart, that shifted their question from what does this mean to what? What shall we do? A means of application, a response. And so we pick right back up there today in verse 37. everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So essentially their question here, as they ask, what are we to do? is what must we do to be saved? That's the question. What must we do to have our sins forgiven? What must we do? Which is an important question, is it not? And what does Peter tell them? Repent and be baptized. First, let's look at the call to repent. Call to repent, we focused again on this last week, come back on it again now that being the call to turn away from one's sin while simultaneously turning to Christ in faith as our only hope in life and in death. It's a reverse in direction. So not to go overly um, into an illustration, but it's simple. Not following Christ. Following the ways of the world. Treasure of the world. And every idol that this world offers over here. Repentance. Turn away from this world. And Christ is our treasure. And we are following Christ. That is what it means to repent. To turn away from sin. Turn away from our idols. And turn to Christ in faith. To turn to him as our only hope in life and death. So, Again, turning away from that which grips our heart in this world and turning in faith to Christ as our King, as our Lord, as the one whom our heart treasures above all else, as the one whom we desire to please. And that's impossible, again, without what? Without faith. Repentance is impossible without faith. That's why they're so intimately connected, hand-in-hand connected. Impossible to leave this world behind and the treasures of this world behind if we don't truly believe that Christ is the greater treasure. We see him worth selling everything to obtain. Not that we have to sell it to obtain, but we would if we had to. It's the question for each and every one of us in this room. Is have we repented of our sin? Have we turned in faith away from our sin to follow Christ? And are we presently living a life of faithful repentance to our Lord? Because it's not just a one-time thing. We don't just turn and live a perfectly sinless life, do we? We always are having sin that's vying for our attention, vying for our heart's affection. It's a constant of continuing to repent and continuing to believe that Christ is the greatest treasure. It's ongoing throughout the entire life of the believer. So I'll ask, does this describe you? But then, after repentance, what does Peter tell the crowd to do? Be baptized, which can sound like what upon reading the text? It can sound like one must be baptized in order to be saved, can it not? But if that's what Peter is saying, that someone must be baptized in order to be saved, it would make baptism then a what? A work. And if baptism is a work that we must do in order to be saved, then it would negate what as the only means of salvation? Faith. Repentance and faith in Christ alone. And the Bible is very clear that sinners are saved how? By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Not by works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. If we're saved by any measure of what we bring to the table, what are we going to do? Hey, look what I did. Look what I bring to the table in this equation. It's like somebody come to a family meal or a gathering, a church fellowship, and the whole spread is out. The meat, the good food, everything else. You bring the napkins. Look what I brought. Nobody's impressed. It does nothing to enhance the meal. We do nothing to earn our salvation. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. We are unable to boast in anything other than who? Christ alone. We boast in Christ crucified, who is our true treasure, risen from the grave. Which is why faith in Christ alone is required for salvation. But then, of course, again, the question, why then the command to be baptized? And why is the command to be baptized followed by saying, for the forgiveness of sins? Why is the word of that way? Here's why. The forgiveness of sins is received by God's grace through faith. So repentance and faith in Christ alone. Cannot stress this enough. And believers' baptism, then, is the visible act that publicly signifies our belief, our faith in Christ to the church, so the watching church, and the watching world. Christ is our king. That's what we're identifying in those baptismal waters. We're declaring the gospel through that. But, Jeremy, another question. How do we know this for certain? How do we know? Baptism isn't a requirement for salvation because some churches, some denominations, some groups teach this because of what it says here. And frankly, that's, if you're just reading this one verse, that's what it sounds like, right? Well, here's how that we know this, by looking at the broader scriptural evidence. We do not base our theology at any point in time off of just one verse, but a collection of what the Bible says about a given topic. Even just here in Acts. Let's look and see what, the, what Peter and Luke and others are telling us here in Acts. Peter already quoted Joel, as we looked at last week, saying what? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What does Joel or Peter say nothing about? Baptism. Then in chapter 10, verse 43, Peter tells the Gentiles gathered at Cornelius' house that everyone who believes in him, him being Christ, receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Then in Acts chapter 13, verse 39, by him everyone who believes, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. How do you freed from the law? Through faith in Christ alone. Acts 15, 9. And God made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by what? By faith. Not by works, but by faith by the grace of God. Acts 16, jailer asked Jesus, what must he do to be saved? So he's asking this question. And Paul and Silas respond, how? Believe in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Thus, again, the scriptural evidence pointing over and over and over again, thus, faith in Christ alone is what saves. But all of this, repentance and faith, cumulatively teaching us the New Testament pattern of repent and believe and then follow the Lord in believer's baptism as an outward expression of your faith. Which means while water baptism is not what saves, neither is it simply an option to be considered. Which brings us to question number two. Who is called to repent and to be baptized? Who is this command? Who is this call given to? Verse 38. Every one of you. Pretty simple, right? Every one of you. So everyone listening at the moment, in that moment, at that message was out discrimination. Everyone who is gathered at Pentecost to hear Peter's sermon is called to repent and be baptized. They hear the word of God preached, and now they must respond either with faith or discontinued disbelief. What shall it be? The call is to repent and be baptized. This is the call that continues to go out today. So if you are in the sound of my voice, you hearing this in person or over the live stream or wherever it may be, this is the call. Believe Jesus is Lord, then repent and be baptized. Believe that he is king, repent of your sins, be baptized, and follow him as your king. That is the call that is extended. Number three, and what's promised to those who repent and are baptized. Those who follow Jesus as their king, two things are promised. Not because we're following him. The following him is a result of our faith. So everything we receive, again, is a gift of God's grace through faith. But this is what we receive if we are following Christ by faith. One, their promise that their sins will be forgiven. Meaning, they, we, are promised that we will be declared righteous before the holy, holy, holy God through faith in Christ alone. Church, sit on that for just a moment. That we who are sinners, deserving of God's wrath, deserving of God's judgment, are saved Forgiven of our sins against the holy, holy, holy God who detests and hates sin. How? Exclusively by grace through faith in Christ alone. Let that bring your heart to worship. That knowledge, that understanding, not emotionalism, but just emotion of what this means in our life. This is huge. The forgiveness of sins. Sin debt erased, gone, under God's judgment, no more. Why? Because Christ paid our debt for us. But is this the only thing that we're promised? No. Again, this is huge, right? (laughs) This is massively huge, the forgiveness of sins. But the forgiveness of sins is not the end of the Christian life. That's our problem as a church culture. We've made this the end game rather than the starting point. It's only the beginning because promise two is what? That they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So for those who have watched Top Gun 2, miracle number one, forgiveness of sins. Miracle number two, The gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't do anything to deserve this. This is also huge. Massively, massively huge. And we have the tendency, especially within Baptist cultures, to be like shying away from the Holy Spirit. A little spooky, a little like, I don't want to be associated over here. I don't want to be associated with wrong teaching. So we're like, I just won't talk about it. That's wrong because the Holy Spirit is equally God. He is a gift that we have received. At the same time, we must adhere to the gifts and understand the teaching as the Bible says and not try to do man-made manipulation. There's a big difference that is there. You know, some of you see me like even stepping out of the pulpit. you like, Jeremy has just gone charismatic compared to what he's used to. I'll try to keep it together. But the natural question here, what does this mean to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Like, what does this mean? Like, what exactly does it mean to receive this gift? Is it referring to being baptized in the Spirit, as we read in chapter 1, verse 5? Is it referring to receiving the power of the Spirit, as we read in chapter 1, verse 8? Or is it referring to being filled with the Spirit as we read in chapter 4, or chapter 2, verse 4? The answer yes. Yes to all of it. All of it. If you truly repent and believe in Jesus as your only hope in life and in death, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Not partially, but fully. There is no second baptism. There is no second receiving of the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit in full at the moment of conversion. Not a little at a time, but fully. And who is this promise for? That's the fourth question. Who is this promise for? Because it sounds like a really good promise, right? Who's it for? Verse 39. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So three groups of people are mentioned here with this promise. We've got you mentioned here. Referring to those who, all who are present in that moment hearing these words. So we say you, all of you who are here hearing this sermon, you. And remember, the vast majority of those who are present are are what? They're Jews. He's saying, you Jewish people, this promise is for you. And they're like, yeah, of course, it's for me. And he also goes, and says, it's for who? For your children. So Jewish children, all your children, this is for you. And then for who? For all who are far off which is referring to the ends of the earth. He's referring to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, thus the wording everyone. This is for everyone, even though it will not be until Acts chapter 10, when Peter is with Cornelius and receives the dream about the food and the unclean and this and that, that he's going to really realize that, oh, this is for the Gentiles too. This isn't clicking for him yet. That's why the Spirit is preaching through him. (laughs) We're trusting the Spirit's work here. And so Acts chapter 10 comes, Peter will understand this, that this promise is truly for everyone, Jew and Gentile, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, the grace of God. This promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. No one else. But now, here's where I do feel that I need to take an intentional rabbit trail for a moment. I don't know if it can be called a rabbit trail, if it's intentional or not. But needless to say, it is an intentional moment to say, okay, I'd be remiss if I passed over this promise without ever addressing the argument our Presbyterian brothers and sisters make for, for paedo baptism, for infant baptism, from this text, from this promise. See, they'd argue, and by argue, I mean in a friendly way that both here in our text today and in the Old Testament, that God makes a promise to believers and their children. Now connecting here, they would say, now connecting Jews and their children with believers and their children as a covenant change. And with that, they'd argue that in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God attaches signs to these promises, which he does attach signs to these promises. Old Testament sign being what? Circumcision. Everybody's like, I don't want to say that out loud in church. The New Testament sign being what? Baptism. That's easier to say as Baptists we're saying. Baptism. With baptism in their minds then replacing circumcision as the covenant sign from this point forward in the book of Acts throughout church history. So the thought being, just as you'd circumcise an infant as part of the covenant community in the Old Testament, you you baptize then an infant as a recipient of the promise in this covenant community of the church. And I know there's going to be different things they're going to bring to that equation, but overall, I, I get the reasoning behind the argument. I see the connecting thread that's attempting to be made here. And I greatly, greatly appreciate how, how they don't view infant baptism in the saving sense like the Catholic Church does. Catholic Church seeing this is a work of salvation. Presbyterians do not. Meaning Presbyterians in no way see this as a work done to earn one's salvation. But, and I preface my but here with a deep affection for so many of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ, but I think verse 39 Itself puts some serious holes in their argument. <clears throat> Excuse me. As verse 39 appears to say more than I think that they want it to say. And here's what I mean by that. See, they address or attempt to address how this promise is for you and your children. But it's also for who? For all who are far off. Which, if we're being consistent with the text, it carries the same weight and instruction as for you and for your children. Which means, logically speaking, by just following the argument that they're making for infant baptism, if, if we're willing to or actually believe we should baptize unrepentant sinners as infants, then would we not be so convinced to baptize any and all unrepentant sinners who are far off? See, the prerequisite given for baptism in this text is what? Repentance. Repentance, which again is intimately tied with belief. And it's a command given to a crowd. Everybody in the crowd is who? A crowd of unrepentant unbelievers. There's not a giving a a command to believers at this point. People are asking, like, what do we do? (laughs) That's what he's given a command to. But the promise is no repentance, no belief, what? No baptism. Why? Because without repentance and belief, there's been no forgiveness of sins. There's been no giving of the Holy Spirit, which is why as a church, we as a church believe in credo-baptism, or what we more commonly refer to as believer's baptism we believe the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit are given exclusively to repentant believers. Second part of verse 39, given to everyone who calls upon, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And yes, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, which as a means of application, and there's all kinds of applications we can glean here, as a means of application, however, certainly opens the pathway for children to come to saving faith in Christ and receive believer's baptism. If, and only if, they are repentant of their sins and are willing to follow Christ as their king. But without repentance and belief, regardless of age, so from children to adult, no person should be ever baptized. Now here's where I want to zoom out, all right? So again, I could stay there for a very long time, but now I want to zoom out. How does this promise give us hope for today? That's question number five. How does this promise give us hope today? Seeing that the promise to be baptized, seeing who this is for, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who the Lord calls to himself, how does this give us hope for today? And how does it give us hope even when we may feel very distant from God? And to get our answer, turn with me now to Luke chapter 3. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. This is where people are wondering, they're curious. Is John the Baptist the long-awaited Messiah? <laughs> is John the Christ? That's the question that they're wondering. That's what they are asking And as they question John about this, they're like, are you him? He answers in Luke chapter 3, verse 16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. All right. So before Jesus' earthly ministry even begins, John is prophesying about what? About the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus himself will bring. So a Holy Spirit that is promised. That's what we have here. It's promised. So we're, we're in Acts. Jesus has already ascended to, to the throne. So he's death, burial, resurrection, ascension. But now we're backing up to the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're seeing this promise from John. That's here. And now we're going to hold this promise that John has given, that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We're going to hold that, and now we're going to look down just a few verses to verse 21 in Jesus' baptism. Now, when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, "You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased." And so what we have here with John's baptism is a transition point in the biblical narrative from the Old Testament to the New Testament. What we have is, is a transition from a ministry of prophets and priests and kings to the ministry of who? the prophet priest and king. And we're told here that he, Jesus, receives the Holy Spirit upon his baptism. But who doesn't receive the promised Holy Spirit upon their water baptisms? The people. There's no mention of them receiving the Holy Spirit. Why? Why isn't the, the promise made by John in verse 16 immediately fulfilled at the start of Jesus' ministry? Well, for our answer, turn with me Quickly to John chapter 7, verse 39, where Jesus has just spoken to a gathered crowd about the importance of believing in Him. And then John chapter 7, verse 39, speaking of the promised Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were promised to receive. Again, so the promise is those who believe in Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit. But they haven't received it yet, right? As the text says, as of yet what? The Spirit had not been given. Why? Gives us the answer. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Meaning what? That before the Spirit could come, Jesus had to first be what? Glorified. He had to be delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He had to live and to die and to be buried for three days and rise from the grave in accordance with the Scriptures, which brought about his what? His exaltation and the forgiveness of sins. But now back to Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and 33, with Peter inside of his sermon saying, this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus has received the Spirit back at his baptism. He has, what? Poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's poured out the Spirit because they were told then after his, before his ascension to go, what? Go to the upper room and wait. Go, wait for the promised Spirit to come. And so at Pentecost, the gift of the promised spirit is poured out upon the 120. Meaning here's the connection. Yes, Jesus. Securing the salvation of his people is a massive culminating moment in the overall biblical narrative. We rejoice in the forgiveness of our sins. We rejoice in the forgiveness of sins of any sinner who repents and believes. Amen? This is a good thing, a great thing. But again, that's not the end of the Christian's journey. It's the beginning. It's not that we saved and then just say, all right, I'm good. There's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible doesn't end with the Gospels what's the promise that the prophet Joel has made and that John the Baptist has made and that Jesus himself has made it's the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit meaning Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave so that he could fulfill this promise so that he could send the Holy Spirit upon his people meaning the central purpose of Jesus' entire ministry is realized in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He lived and he died and he rose from the grave to fulfill this promise along with the promise of the forgiveness of sins. To not only have our sins forgiven, but to give us the Holy Spirit so that we as his church could carry forth the mission of God so that he could usher in his kingdom through the work of the Spirit in us as the church. Meaning, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost isn't of first importance a matter of one's personal experience or the gifting that one receives. The first importance of the Spirit coming at Pentecost is the glory of Christ. It's the glory of Christ himself. This is his culminating work, which is why the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost isn't a model that can or should or will ever be repeated. It can't be. Just as the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, they cannot be repeated. Nor does it have to be repeated. Why? Why? Because the Spirit's power doesn't wear off. And nor will His ongoing work in our life pass away. Which means we don't need to invite the Holy Spirit to enter into this place. Or to fill this atmosphere. Why? Because if we're in Christ, this is the good news, church. If we are in Christ, He already indwells us. It's foolishness to invite the Holy Spirit into a place where he already dwells. He dwells within us. We rejoice in this. And guess what? He's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. But Jeremy, if that's the case, then why do I feel so distant from God right now? Why are we as a church not seeing more people baptized? Good questions. Well, for one, because the Spirit doesn't manifest Himself with the same intensity at every time and every place throughout history. 3,000 coming to faith in Christ in one day at Pentecost (laughs) was a spectacular and amazing work of the Spirit, was it not? But it's not a normative pattern that we see repeated throughout Acts or the rest of the New Testament. Yes, people day by day, we're told in their, the next text, are coming to the Lord after Pentecost. Day by day, coming and being saved. But not 3,000 a day. If that were the case, the entire world would have been reached a long time ago. But as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you, you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of spirit meaning there will be times when the spirit will manifest himself in stronger and more noticeable ways in our life and in our things that we see and do and there will be times when it may feel like just be honest it may feel like he's not working at all but pentecost is the reminder that the spirit is ever present Pentecost is the reminder that the Holy Spirit has not and will not abandon his church. For further evidence, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus' final words to his disciples, recorded by by Matthew, a passage that we are most familiar and commonly referred to as the, the Great Commission. But verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's king, he's Lord. And as king, as Lord, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And how is it, church, that Jesus is with us to the end of the age? Through the Spirit who now indwells us as believers. See, Acts is the part two of where the Gospels leave off. The Gospels ending with the glorious promise that our sins have been forgiven. A promise that is declared all through the pastoral epistles and all throughout the New Testament. But Acts, picking up with the glorious gift of the Holy Spirit and the Christian life that awaits, proclaiming this good news, proclaiming this message. See, Jesus' promise of I am with you always to the end of the age is the promise of Christmas. It is also the promise of Pentecost, God with us. The promise that Christ will always be with his church through the Spirit, until He returns. Adam and Eve, out of God's presence. God's people wandering in the wilderness, and God so lovingly begins to tabernacle with and dwell with them. But This far and only that far, no further. Temple built, God with His people, but still there's a distance there. He sends His one and only Son, To live and to die and to rise from the grave. God with us in Christ. Christ ascends to heaven. Right hand of the Father. Reigning as king. God with us in the Holy Spirit. Indwelling us as his people. As the temples of God. So yes, the Spirit will manifest himself in different ways in different seasons. But he is never absent in the life of the believer. Never, ever, ever absent in the life of the believer. Which means the distance that we sometimes feel could result from any number of reasons. But it's not because he's absent in the life of the believer. Now what are some of these reasons? Well, every situation is unique, but here are some important reasons that you may be feeling distant. It could be you're feeling distant because you never actually received the Spirit. Maybe in your mind you're convinced that you're a believer. Convinced that you're a Christian because you claimed to believe in Christ at one point in time in your life or because of a tradition that your family follows or maybe because you were ceremonially baptized as an infant or maybe even because you followed in believers' baptism. But truth be told, if you're really being honest with yourself, you've, you've never repented of your sins and turned to follow Christ. you never trusted Him as your only hope in life and in death. And if this is the case of you today, I, I invite you to call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. Repent and be baptized. Or, if you're being honest, The distance you feel could be the result of unrepentant sin in your life at present. So on one hand, you're you're claiming to desire intimacy with God, while on the other hand, you're refusing to turn from what he hates and follow him on his terms. Which, friend, is a very dangerous place to be. Need proof? Read the Old Testament. People of Israel wanting all of God's promises. Wanting all of God's blessings. You know what they didn't want? They didn't want God on his terms. Maybe this is you this morning. A refusal to repent. A refusal to want God on God's terms. And thus the separation and distance and pain that comes as a result. Repent. Yet another reason you may be feeling distant It may be the result of of you not spending time with God in His Word and in prayer on a daily, consistent basis. Again, I think about students returning from camp and quickly losing that spiritual mountaintop experience, that high. But while at camp, the routine is what? You wake up every morning. And you have a scheduled time to spend in God's Word, to spend in prayer. You gather with other believers in Bible study. You talk about the things of Christ. You're removed from various sinful temptations and unhealthy practices that tempt you at home. You're fed from God's Word and and spend time with other believers singing praises to God. And then you spend time collectively reflecting on these things to end your day. But then you come home. You come home and and you want the experience of that spiritual and emotional high to continue. But see, that's desiring intimacy without time spent together. Which isn't going to work in a relationship, whether it's a person or with God. Trust and intimacy and closeness are built on time. And if your excuse is, like, I'm just too busy. I got too much going on. You don't know my life. You don't know my schedule. Stop and think about who you're saying that to. Like, stop and think about who, who you're saying this to. I, I'm too busy, God. Consider that what you're busy with may just be the true treasure of your heart, not the Lord, which is unrepentant sin. It's idols in the camp you're unwilling to remove. Now, does this mean that every season of life is going to have the same level of, like, I've got this much time to give? (laughs) No, if if you're a, a, a mom who's at home with your children, Your time spent with your children is way different than a retiree who is home with his or her time, right? If you're working from 8 in the morning to 5 in the evening, yes, there's blocks of schedule where you're working and you've got your commute and all those things. We've got to make time. We have to carve out time to rise up earlier set aside the conversations, turn off the, the TVs, put down the phones, take out the earbuds, stop the conversation and say, I'm going to read the text and all you little ones you are going to listen as I read it, but i got to be in the text. we got to be able to study and know and to come before God in his word. It's not the quantity of the amount of time that we're doing but it's coming, saying, "I need you, God. I my works will never sustain. I need you." That creates intimacy. Imagine never spending time with your spouse. <laughs> no intimacy. Same thing applies in desiring more baptisms, desiring more people to come to faith in Christ. Yes, a lack of baptisms could be because the Spirit hasn't chosen to blow in this direction at this time. But also consider, a lack of baptisms could be the result that are, are we being faithful to the task that Jesus has commanded us to do and given us the power to do? Are we being faithful to making disciples of all nations? Because yes, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But again, not over and over again, how are they to call on him whom they have never believed or heard? How are they to believe if they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching and proclaiming and making known the good news of the gospel? They can't. They won't. Yes, salvation is 100% the work of God's sovereign hand, but he's also made it clear that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Which means we have work to do, church. We plant and we water and we keep planting and we keep watering and God gives the growth. We tell people what all of this means, teaching them everything Christ has commanded and we trust the Spirit through His word to cut to the heart. But plain and simple, church. Biblical conversion. The Christian life isn't a life spent walking with the Lord on the mountaintops, but a life spent faithfully walking with the Lord through the valleys. The strength or closeness of our relationship with God, not measured by the ebbs and flows of our feelings and emotions and personal experiences, but our continued repentance and belief that are made possible by the Spirit's work in our life. Our continued reliance upon the Spirit's power as we live in obedience to His commands. You know what? We'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Above all, we thank you for you, who is the promise giver. You are the one who gives forgiveness. You are the one who gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are the one who makes the Christian life possible. You are the one who makes us Christians. And Lord, we say thank you. We thank you for showing us Christ through your text, through your word. Lord, I pray today that if there be anyone here today who has never repented and believed and never followed in believer's baptism, that today will be the day of salvation. Cut them to the heart and draw them to yourself. For others who say, I believe in Christ, but still have unrepentant sin in their hearts and their life, or may today be the day that they do business, relying upon the Spirit to to turn away from that sin, discard that sin, seek help in overcoming that sin. They have a church community. Help them to realize they cannot do this on their own nor do they have to. And Lord, help them repent and continue to believe. And Lord, as we as a church, give us an awareness of the lostness that surrounds us. And may we be faithful, yes, to pray. Oh, may we pray for the Spirit to move within this community, within the world, to bring people unto Himself. But, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful, eyes open, to all the opportunities that surround us to proclaim the good news and trust you with the results. We say thank you, Lord.